0: Sorry, is this okay? Okay. <laughs> is found Mark in Mark chapter twelve, verses twenty-eight through thirty-four. And it reads, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength the second is this you shall love your neighbor as yourself there is no other commandment greater than these and the scribe, the scribe said to him you are right teacher you have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him and to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord.
1: All right, thanks, Sam. Hey, I'm Brandon, I'm one of the pastors here. So glad you're with us this morning. Um, this fall, we have been teaching through uh, a vision series on spiritual formation. And if you're new uh, to church, or maybe it's been a while, uh, or maybe if you grew up in the church, maybe this is something that could be uh, new to you as well. Um, our tagline for this series and the way we're defining that is learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And we'll just keep saying that over and over again until you get tired of it. Um, when you get tired of it, it means you're just starting to grasp probably uh, a little bit of what it means, but learning to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. Now, as we think about this call to formation, which is really the essence of what it means to be uh, a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, um, uh, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, so if you haven't, just forgive me. uh, I'll I'll just have a little confession time here, but um, there's often a gap between what I know and what I do. There's often massive gaps between, if I'm honest, what I want uh, and what I should want, what I, what I desire and a- how I actually live. So um, I don't know if you've ever experienced that, where you just you seem to be kind of uh, a cauldron of, of conflicting desires, mixed motivations, and although you say certain things really matter to you, your life uh, kind of contradicts that in certain uh, ways. Um, let me put a couple images in your head here, um, just on the most, like, crass, easiest level, uh, like, earthy level. I went to, uh, my son uh, plays middle school basketball, and I went to his basketball game the other day, and there was a middle school, I, I don't know if it was a dance, squ- I couldn't tell if it was a dance squad or a cheerleading squad or an attempt to be both. All I know is um, it is interesting to watch middle school uh, cheerleading squads because uh, there's not exactly the kind of, like, synchronization and rhythm that you would hope for. Um, and so as you're watching, it's like one person's over here doing a kick, uh, and another one's kind of like giving a clap, and it's, it's not really in sync, right? And that tends to be characteristic of uh, young, young teams like that. And, and so for me, it kind of like gave me this imagery of like that's how I feel on the inside oftentimes, like throughout my week. Like uh, there's a kick going up over here. There's a clap going off over here. There's just this lack of like integrated synchronization and harmony, it's, it's more like a cacophony that's kind of brewing inside of me. There's all these desires and longings that seem to be going all over the place, and there's no real rhythm to them. Uh, another idea or image uh, to put in your head is maybe uh, the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, a, a story many of us are familiar with and probably have never read the like, 80-something-page book of Robert Louis Stevenson's. Um, and so in this, you have Dr. Jekyll, who uh, is this man who recognizes that he has inside of him these competing desires, and he wants to kind of separate them out, and so he concocts a potion that will split his two natures, and the idea is at night he wants to drink the potion so that he could become uh, Mr. Hyde and, and and do all the bad stuff and kind of get that out, and then during the day he can live as, as uh, Dr. Jekyll uh, with like unmixed motivation and be this good, moral, upright uh, citizen. We know uh, over time what happens is Mr. Hyde begins to dominate more and more of his life, and, and his name Hyde there uh, is kind of a, a double entendre. It's, it means a couple things. Uh, one, it's, uh, it's this idea of hideousness. There's this hideousness or evil that's inside of us, this darkness that seems to live in us. Um, and, then, uh, and then it's hidden, right? The other di- idea is that it's hidden. It's not something that's always obvious to us, but it oftentimes will emerge and I don't know if you see this in the news, like when, a, when an athlete does something or like there's a big like corporate scandal and somebody has their like confession, um, what they'll often say is, man, that's not really me, right? That's just something that I don't know how to explain it. That, that wasn't really the real me. And the, and the reality is, no, that is the real you. What, what came up there and popped through your filter is actually a part of you. Although it's hidden and dark, it's actually um, there and we have to deal with that and try to figure out what to do with all of these conflicting desires. Now, eventually, uh, Dr. Jekyll um, uh, kills himself, and it's a dark ending that we don't often tell our children when we're telling the story, um, because he, he's so overwhelmed with this kind of duality, with this tension that he's trying to hold together, this civil war of the soul. If you read ancient spiritual writings, you read the Bible, what we see is Um, People who are honest about the spiritual journey, honest about formation, um, recognize this tension and talk about it very openly and honestly. Way more than we probably are comfortable with. So I think of one of my favorite um, passages in the Bible, Romans chapter 7. The Apostle Paul describes his own struggle. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul, right? Like, wrote over half of the New Testament. And and listen to the way that the Apostle Paul describes this this split self. Um, Here's what he says. Now, uh, for I do not understand my own actions. Like, we should put that on a t shirt. I feel like that's the anthem of my life. I do not understand me. I don't understand why I do what I do. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. Verse 19, uh, 18. For I have the desire to do what's right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want. But the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Sufjan Stevens has a great uh, song about this called John Wayne Gacy Jr. And in this song, it's a, it's a dark song about a serial killer named John Wayne Gacy who killed 30 people and hid them under the floorboards of his house. Now, I'm from Louisville. It's a very Charles Manson-esque story. Uh, and it's a, it's, a, it's a terrible story. But in, it's interesting at the end, so he's kind of lamenting uh, John Wayne Gacy. And then at the very end, there's a twist And here's what he says about himself. And in my best behavior, I am really just like him. Look beneath the floorboards for the secrets I have hid. He said all of us bury certain aspects of ourselves underneath the floorboards, aspects of ourselves that we don't want others to see. And if we're honest, we are just like those people that we despise, just like those people that we're like, oh, I can't believe. Uh, that somebody would do such a thing. Now, maybe inside of us under the floorboards is not exactly murderous desire. Maybe it's lust. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's jealousy. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's loneliness. Maybe it's sadness. But the reason it, 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 it often makes us so angry is because we resonate so deeply with it. We know that inside of us there is this split self that seems to, on the one hand, desire God, to desire what's good and true and beautiful and eternal and unchanging, and yet, at the same time, to desire things that are opposite, right? Things that don't, aren't lovely, aren't beautiful, don't bring ultimate fulfillness, fulfillment and happiness. And there's this civil war kind of happening within us. This is the heart of what Jesus is addressing here in uh, Matthew, is how do we align, or excuse me, in Mark chapter 12. This story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, a little bit of a different twist in each one. Uh, But I want to give us the context first before we jump in because it's not exactly obvious to us or as obvious to us as it would have been to an ancient Jew, right? People here that Jesus is talking to would have understood exactly what he was describing here in this invitation uh, to love God with all of our being, but we don't. So I want to give a little bit of context here. Um, So we have Jesus uh, in what's called his temple ministry at the end of the book of Mark. And in this temple ministry, Jesus has just cleansed the temple. It's kind of like a West Side Story, you know, dance-off between Jesus and the religious authorities. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are kind of going toe-to-toe with Jesus. And so he's cleared the temple. He's called them out. He has this authority that threatens the kind of religious power structures uh, of his day. And so in the shadow, in the backdrop of all that's happening in this conversation with Jesus and the scribe, this religious scholar, we have all of the power structures of, of kind of uh, Judaism coming up against uh, Jesus. And so interestingly here in Mark, it's the only account that we have where they're not trying to trap Jesus. This is a curious, uh, seeking scribe, a, a guy who would have been an expert in the Old Testament law. And so he comes to Jesus and he's impressed, he's, he's interested, he's intrigued, he's curious, maybe some of you you're here this morning and that's you. It's just like I've heard things about Jesus. I didn't grow up in church or I grew up in church and I left the church, but I keep hearing uh, stories of change and transformation. And maybe you're in a season of life where uh, the pain of trying to stay the same and live a certain way, you've kind of hit that ceiling and you're beginning to explore again. That's kind of this guy right here. Um, and so he comes to Jesus and he says, which commandment is the most important of all? Right? And he asks that question because there's like 600 plus commandments on the book, and he's trying to boil them down, and this is a a hot topic among the rabbis of Jesus's day. There's this discussion of of laws and which ones are most important, which ones are the essence of what it means, because it just seems overwhelming to have to obey uh, all these commands. James Edwards, one New Testament scholar, says this, uh, the rabbinic tradition counted 613 commandments in the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament, 365 prohibitions or negatives, 248 positive, like you thought growing up in your house was legalistic, I mean like 600 plus rules, like we only, some of us have like 10, 600 rules. Among the commandments, rabbis differentiated between uh, what they later called, what they called heavy commands and what they called light commandments. The latter made less demand on one's will or possessions, whereas heavy or weighty commandments concern life's uncompromising essentials. Heavy commandments were accorded utmost seriousness and when broken were assessed the severest penalties. So Jesus cutting through the fog answers his question. And here's what he says. The most important, the most significant, the center, the essence of what it means to to follow God is this, to obey his commands. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Now we talked about the second half of this commandment, love your neighbors yourself, a few weeks ago. Today we want to look at the great commandment to love God with all of the our being now again, this would have activated when as soon as Jesus began to say, "Hear, O Israel." This would have activated the Jewish imagination because this is something they were deeply acquainted with. Th- this is called the Shema. Jesus here is quoting. If you want to hold your finger right here, I want to encourage you to turn back or flip back in your device to Deuteronomy chapter six, is what Jesus is quoting, and Jesus kind of takes Deuteronomy chapter six, which um, was a prayer that the Jews would offer up twice a day. So Jesus himself would have grown up praying this prayer, saying this twice a day like uh, a good uh, faithful Jew. Um, the word Shema here comes from Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. It's the Hebrew word for listen. And uh, in the Shema, the word listen doesn't just mean hear with your ears. It doesn't mean like, like vibration of your, uh, the, the process of, of actually hearing. Um, it would mean listen and do. Listen and and obey. Matter of fact, there's not a word just for do. The word is listen and obey. It's all one idea. Shema, listen, and then do, respond with your whole being according to what you hear. So here, these words that Jesus is quoting in, in Deuteronomy 6, this is the backdrop that helps us make sense of his invitation. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. This is Moses speaking to the Israelites. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your Your gates. Literally, they would take these words, write them down on scraps of paper, put them in boxes, tie them onto their hands, symbolizing this is to guide all of your actions, everything you do. They would put them on their forehead, right, as a sign that this is to guide your vision and your optics and how you see the world. This is everything. And then teach them to your children, right? Everywhere you go, not just on Sunday, right? Not just in Bible time at your house. All the time, everywhere. This is the idea that, that Moses and that Jesus is getting after, that God wants all of us, all the time, everywhere. God wants all of you, all the time, everywhere you go. That is the goal of formation. And now, um, the, the reason they w- this was so important, this idea of uh, reciting the fact that God is one, it's not just that God is one, as in God is unified, like Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God's one God, not one in his essence. The idea of oneness here contrasts with the manyness of the uh, kind of polytheistic culture in which Israel was to, uh, was about to enter the promised land. So they were going into a place where there were li- a litany of gods, right, gods of everything. Like if you uh, needed water, there was the god of the rivers, right? If you were having problems with fertility, there were gods of the fertility, right? There were gods of uh, food, there were gods of the land, there were gods of the sky. I mean, it was a very fractured, fragmented view of spirituality and of desire. And so what what Moses is saying, what Jesus is saying, is that the Shema is intended to unite or bring together all of reality under the one true God, under God. Yahweh, right? As one author says, this was to be Israel's pledge of allegiance and their hymn of praise. Every day they are reminding themselves that that the number one goal of their spirituality was to unify their entire person, all of them, all the time, everywhere, and to bring it under the allegiance or into relationship with the God of their ancestors, Yahweh. So the, the invitation here, the call. He says, is to love the Lord your God. To love the Lord your God. This word love, again, we've got to get out of kind of like 21st century modern America where love is about like sappy, saccharine, sentimental, Hallmark cards. You know, it's about just emotions. We kind of reduce love now to like just a feeling, and that's kind of how we think of it. But this word is a rich Hebrew word in Deuteronomy. It's ahavah. The word ahava is a word that broadly speaking refers yes to affection and yes to the care between like parents and children or uh, kind of a brotherly love. It's not less than emotions, but it's so much more, right? It's so much more. It is a commitment. It is about loyalty. It is about allegiance, right? It it speaks of covenant. The covenant that God has established with us, if you think of the word for God's covenant love, it's the word Chesed. Hesed is the word for God's steadfast unbreakable, unstoppable, never changing, never giving up love, right? That is the love of God, and that is the basis for which we then get our idea of Ahava. Ahava is affection, but it is loyalty. It is turning away from loyalty to any other gods, whether they be ourselves or other false gods, anything that I would direct my heart to for hope and happiness and life and joy, is to be turned towards God. It is turning away from allegiance to anyone or anything else and turning towards God, to delight in Him, to make Him the center of my pursuit and ambition in life. That is what it means to love God. Now here is um, something I think that we need to pay attention to. Um, This is a profound anthropological affirmation. Like, Jesus is not giving us, nor nor is Moses giving us a comprehensive anthropology of man, but I think they are saying something that's really important for us to listen to um, anthropologically, right? Like, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be fully alive? What Jesus says is that we are primarily and ultimately lovers before we are anything else, right? When we think about what it means and how we experience transformation He says the fundamental reality is what do you do with your love? What do you do with your longings? What do you do with your desires? Not just your actions, not just your feelings as we think about them in kind of the modern West, Um, not just, how about this, your mind. He doesn't say know the Lord your God or think good thoughts about him or think right thoughts about him or have your doctrine straight. Now again, it's not less than that. But it's so much more comprehensive and searching. He says we are primarily lovers. We are driven by our loves. I love, uh, I don't normally quote um, New Testament commentaries because they're really dry and boring, and whoever, these people that write them, it's like you need to take a poetry class or something. But I love Dale Brunner's explanation of this invitation to love here. He says in his commentary on Matthew, when Jesus makes the kind of command that is supreme, the love command, He opens the hearts of believers like flowers to the sun, to their living posture. We were made for love. He does not so much give us, give an activity that can be calculably done as he gives us a direction to face. We were made for love. It is your greatest desire, but here's the flip side. It is your greatest desire fear, right? Like you are scared to death to really know true love, like a love that sees you for who you really are, all the way to the bottom, quirks and all, right? Like it is our deepest desire to experience that love, and yet it's why some of us can't stay in a relationship. It's why some of us won't get married. It's why some of us won't have children. It's why some of us have a hard time uh, in relationships in general. It's because we don't want people to know the real us, and yet there's this longing for love. You know, the crazy thing about this command to love God is that we're not left to our own to figure out how to love God. Because I don't know about you, but it's, it feels pretty soul-crushing to think that I am responsible for loving God, heart, mind, soul, and strength. That that's left up to me, I know that I don't have what it takes to really love God in that kind of way. And that's kind of the point. That's, that's the good news that Jesus is inviting us to see here is we are not good lovers. We don't love others well. We don't love God well. We don't even love ourselves well. But here's the thing, he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. That word your God there is the word Yahweh, right? The God who already loves you. The God who's already pursued you, the God who's in relationship with you. This love is not something that we manufacture, you could call it an answering love. It's a responsive love. It's God's love that's moved out towards us and made it possible for us to then turn back to him and with the love that he's given us, love him and love our neighbor the way that he's loved us. We are directed to love the Lord our God who has already done great things for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10, right? Great passage in the New Testament. The, the writer John says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he Loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation and take away our sins. Right? It's not about me loving God perfectly, it's the fact that God has loved me perfectly and he invites me in response to offer up my love back to him, as imperfect and incomplete as that is. So it's not, I don't have to nail it, I don't have to get it right. God has loved me and he has defined love for me, he has poured his love, Paul says in Romans 5, out liberally into my heart, that we want God to be a liberal, right, in terms of his love. We want all of God's love, uh, as John Legend says. We want all of him for all of us, all the time, everywhere. That's why Paul writes in Philippians chapter 1, in terms of the goal of the Christian life, it is my prayer that your love may abound, not just your knowledge about doctrine, not just your feelings, your agape ahava love may abound more and more And that it would have, you know, interacting with it, knowledge and discernment. So it's got to have content, of course. It's not just vague and general love. It's got to have content. That's why doctrine matters. That's why the scriptures matter. We don't know God and who he is apart from the scriptures and apart from his revelation to us. But if it doesn't lead to the abounding uh, of love, then we've missed the point. We are lovers, first and foremost. So any notion of change that doesn't have as its source, as its means, and as its end, love will fail. It will fail. And we've got to be careful because we've been trained to not think this way, right? Like you have unwittingly been trained to not think of yourself as a lover, to think of yourself as either a bleeding heart or to think of yourself as a, uh, in the words of Descartes, a thinking thing. We are programmed and wired to think this way. Uh, Jamie Smith, in his great book, You Are What You Love, says this, we have been taught to assume human beings are fundamentally thinking things. While we might never have read or even heard of 17th century French philosopher René Descartes, many of us unwittingly share his definition of the essence of the human person as race, race, and I'm gonna mess this up because I'm I'm not Latin, I'm Greek guy. Uh, cogita, how is it, James? cogitates, Yeah, he takes Latin. Uh, a thinking thing, like Descartes, we view our bodies as at best extraneous, temporary vehicles. I love this for trucking around our souls or our minds, which are re- where all the real action takes place. In other words, we imagine human beings as giant bobblehead dolls with humongous heads and itty-bitty, unimportant bodies. It's the mind that we picture as mission control of the human person. It is thinking that defines who we are. You are what you think is a motto that reduces human beings to brains on a stick. If you don't believe me, look at most religious education programs. What do we do when we want to grow to be like God? We start a Bible study. (laughs) We start a class. Again, not bad things, but if that's it, we're missing out on the fact that we are lovers. It does nothing but actually increase the gap between what we know and what we do, because we know we have all this knowledge. I mean, like, I grew up in Christian schools. I was put in Christian school as a kid, I knew so much information about God, and I was so wicked as a teenager, as a young adult, and still to this day, there are these massive gaps between what I know to be true, I've been to seminary, I have a doctorate in theology, and yet, I still find I'm doing the things I shouldn't do. You are not a brain on a stick, you are a lover. And so the question is, what will you do with your desires? How do you reorient those desires towards God? Discipleship is not just what you think; it is who you are and what you love. The centrality of the heart in our loves is huge. Jamie Smith goes on to say, "So discipleship is more than a matter of hungering and thir- uh, more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing." Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all. That's not the world of the scribes and the Pharisees. Their world is think the right things, keep the right rules that's why Jesus says, you're not far from the kingdom, but you're not there yet. If you acknowledge this, that's the first step. You're moving in the right direction, but the kingdom of God is hungering and thirsting, as he says in the Beatitudes, for righteousness. Hungering and thirsting for God. Isn't that what you want, right? Like, isn't that what you want, to really be the kind of person who really loves God from an authentic, genuine place, and who receives God's love in the core of your being? To abound overflow with this knowledge that I am a beloved child of God. Apart from what I do, apart from my education, apart from my morality, apart from the things that I do for God, first and foremost, I am loved by God. Augustine said it like this, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There is a fundamental, disordered love inside of us that needs to be redirected to God. Not suppressed, not ignored, not denied, and certainly not indulged, but a desire that needs to be reoriented to God. That is our core problem, Jesus says, as human beings, is we have disordered loves. That's the word desire in the New Testament. Desire, hear me, desire is not bad. The word desire is a compound word, epithumia. It means desires in overdrive. Your problem is not your desire. Your problem is your desire is pointing you to a greater thing that needs to be satisfied in you than your physical body, than your lust, than your impulsivity and compulsive habits. Those things were created by God to drive you to him, to find your desires fulfilled in communion, in relationship that is the heart of spiritual formation. Reordering, reorienting our loves, our longings, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. And willing the one thing towards God in love. Bringing all of those things into a symphony. That is the heart of spirituality, Jesus says. And he says, it happens holistically so let's look at these just quickly I don't want to get caught up in the details and I I told myself I wouldn't do this in the first service and I did I did like a deep dive in each one I want to stay high level with this because the point here is not for us to tease these out and go oh here's your heart you know and let's talk about your heart and here's your will over here we don't that's not how we operate as human beings right let's not like okay I'm thinking now and I'm going to be feeling at 4 o'clock today, and then I'm going to be choosing, then I'm going to remember, then I'm going to desire, and I'm going to... No, we don't, we don't live segmented lives. We're an integrated whole. But th- it does help to give a little bit of definition to these areas because what he says is, what, what, what does it look like to love God? He doesn't just leave it up to us to figure that out. He says we've got to love God from or out of the source of these parts of what it means to be human and to see them as an integrated whole. Not to see them as distinct, separate things that we can control robotically, but to say, if you're not paying attention to all of these areas, you are going to be continually experiencing the split self, the civil war of the soul. You can't grow in one area and not seek to grow in the others and think that you're going to have a healthy spirituality. You're going to have a stunted, frustrated spirituality that's not unified under the one true and living God. And that's the goal. So let's look at these Quickly, he says, we should love the Lord our God out of or from our hearts. And we've talked a lot about that, right? Heart is not just feelings. The word here is cardia in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's this cool word called labab, right? Labab there in Deuteronomy chapter 6. Um, the idea of the heart in Hebrew, ancient Near Eastern uh, psychology and anthropology, was it was the executive center of the person. It's the, it's the operating system of a person, Right? It, it does include our emotions, but it's not limited to our emotions. It includes also our thoughts, which is why mind is not in the original translation of uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6. It includes our thoughts. It includes our intellect. It includes our will. It includes our uh, longings and our desires. All of these would have been wrapped up into the idea of loving God with our heart, delighting in Him, pointing our loves and our longings towards him. now what does the bible say about our hearts there's warnings right when it comes to our hearts we have to be careful we live in a moment again that says what follow your heart that is gospel in our culture right do what you love now if you've ever been given that advice and tried to follow it how's that working for you like when somebody tells me that I'm like that freaks me out. It makes me anxious. I don't know what I really love. I don't know what's inside of me. I feel like one day I'm here, and one day I'm here. When somebody tells me, you do you, I'm like, which me are you talking about this week? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm schizophrenic. And, and that's actually a warning in the Bible, Jeremiah 17, 9. So we have a lot of scripture. I'm going to buzz through this, but i want to give you some pictures of the heart from the scriptures. Jeremiah 17, the heart is deceitful above all things jeremiah says do not follow your heart some of our biggest regrets in life are because we're trying to follow our heart and yet we don't understand our hearts it's not just the physical organ that's pumping in our body it is this complex mystery this operating system that we don't really understand a cauldron of conflicting desires the heart is deceitful and desperately sick who can understand it I, the Lord, search the heart. The only one who knows the heart is God. I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So God knows the heart. Matthew fifteen eight. this is one of Jesus' central accusations against the religious leaders. Your mouth, your lips are disconnected from your heart. This people, these religious leaders, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far. I, mean, I do know if you've ever experienced a divided heart. Where you show up, and maybe some of you are there, like right now, you show up at church, you're saying the right things, but your heart's not in it. It's disconnected from your reality. You're anxious, you're fearful, you're sad, you're lonely. You don't share any of that with anybody, but it's the baggage that you carry into this place. Your lips, your heart. So we have to be careful to to mind those gaps. To be honest about where our hearts are. To not just follow our hearts, but to be circumspect about what's happening inside of us. The promise of the Bible is that God gives us a new heart. Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. This is what God is after. Heart surgery, right? God is going in to give us a new operating system, to give us a new executive center. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean from all your uncleanness, all your shame, all your guilt, all your deception. He says, I'm coming to deal with that. And from all of your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. God gives us the ability to have a new heart. He takes out our heart of stone and he gives us a heart that is inclined towards and delighting in him. And so then the command to us, Proverbs chapter four, is guard your heart. Watch out. My, uh, man the borders of your heart. Your heart belongs to God alone, not to any other human being, not to your boss, not to your professors, not even to your spouse. Your heart belongs to God. Guard your heart, keep your heart, Proverbs chapter 4, for out of it spring all the issues of life. It's the well of life, and so we need to be careful what we allow into our heart, what we allow to touch our desires, the relationships that we get into. It's why you need to be careful about who you date. It's why you need to be careful about what you look at. It's why you need to be careful about what you talk at. It's why you need to be careful what you look at on social media, because all of these things have the ability to darken and contaminate and divide your heart, and a divided heart is a terrible place to be. So we've got to watch our heart, because out of that flows all the issues of life. Second thing, love the Lord your God from your soul. The word soul here is suke, from which we get psychology. In the Old Testament, it's the word nephesh. And again, we've been very influenced here by uh, a group of philosophers, kind of starting with Plato, uh, to kind of think of the soul as the immaterial, non physical ghost in a machine kind of thing that needs to be liberated, that our bodies are evil and that our souls are good. And really, uh, the goal of life, even for a lot of Christians, is to just deny the body and be harsh on the body and liberate the soul, right? And they think of the afterlife as basically a disembodied existence where they sit on a cloud and strum harps with Jesus for the rest of eternity, right? Like, that's how we've been trained to think about nefesh, this word Nephesh is mentioned 700 times in the Old Testament. It literally means the throat or the breath. It, it's, it's, it's in reference to just like the whole living being, who I am, breathing, physical. There's a physicality to nefesh. We are embodied souls and ensouled bodies. You don't just have a body, you are a body. You don't just have a soul, you are a soul. And we have really poor theology when it comes to um, the body, and we don't know what to do with our bodies. And we misinterpret all kinds of passages, so we are confused about our bodies. Um, Some of us have been abused, and so we, 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 we hate our bodies. We have this weird relationship with our bodies. We have mental health issues, and we don't know what to do with that. Um, We dismiss our bodies. We've been taught to dismiss our bodies through neglect. We over-spiritualize our bodies. One of my favorite passages uh, on this is Nefesh's Song of Songs, chapter 3, which is a love song between a woman and her lover. Um, And uh, my son's in here, so I want to be careful. But on my bed by night, I sought him whom my, my Nefesh loves. I sought him but found him not. She says, my Nefesh wants your Nefesh. And commentators do all kinds of weird stuff. This is the relationship between God and the church. Uh, You know, this is like talking about their soulmates. That is importing Western categories into this verse. What she means is, I'm on my bed, and my nefesh wants your nefesh. said, right? It is body. It is raw. It is earthy conversation. It's embarrassing because we don't know how to talk about our bodies. The body was created for God. Paul says in uh, Colossians and in Timothy, be careful of demonic teachers who devalue the body and don't know what to do with the body and teach you to be harsh and severe on your body. From the soul, all of our bodies, with all of our being, we're to worship God. From the mind, our dionia. Jesus adds this for emphasis, right? He breaks it out from the heart. Uh, he's talking about our intellect, about our purposes, about our intentions. The idea here is learning to think God's thoughts after him, reading, reflecting, perceiving, re-scripting lies about life, right? We realize that we're not as independent of thinkers as we like to think that we are. We've been shaped by our families of origin. We've been shaped by professors. We've been shaped by the media. We've been shaped by the devil himself. The Bible says this is spiritual warfare. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, I'll just throw this up here. Um, In learning to think God's thoughts after him, we are up against a whole array of forces that want to keep us in bondage against believing and thinking like God believes and thinks about reality. So here, 2 Corinthians 10. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh but have divine power to destroy strongholds. The idea of a stronghold is a refuge or a fortress that's been established, a beachhead from the enemy that's been established in our thought patterns and our way of looking at reality that has to be torn down. And it only happens, he says, uh, with the power of God. We destroy arguments and every opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Romans 12, 2. Be transformed. Don't be conformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The last one is our strength. It's the word maoed. Uh, mayod is a word that is really strange and interesting. Uh, it actually it, It's an adverb. It literally means very or much. So God created a world that was mayod good. Uh, Cain was mayod angry at his brother. It's an adverb. Um, you could describe it in noun form as like our "variness" and our muchness. Right? The idea here is that this word intensifies uh, the other words around it. It basically just means to use all of our capacities, physical, emotional. It kind of captures the totality of the rest of these things and says all of your power, all that you are, your power, your presence. Right? The Jews uh, translated this word as dunamis, power. Uh, the Aramaics translated this word as your wealth, I think it just means all of it, your power and your presence, everything that you have, everything that you are, all of your capacities are to be offered up to God, to honor God, to love God, to delight with God. Your possessions, your body, your home, your marriage, your children, your technology, your relationships, all of it. Give God your veryness. Give God your So how do we apply that quickly here before we go to communion? I want to say just a couple things. One, um, I think the imitation here again is integration. Integration, to see how all of these realities work together, right? God wants all of me, all the time, everywhere. God wants all of me, let's say it together. God wants all of me, all the time, everywhere. Let's say it again. God wants all of me, all the time, everywhere right Psalm 86:11 the psalmist writes unite my heart god unify me right help me to see that i am a, a whole person who needs to offer all of myself exclusively and ultimately to you in love reorder my desires that's why all is mentioned four times all of your heart all of your soul all of your strength all of your variness. it's a call to whole person integration as opposed to the way that we often live our lives, which is disintegration. Let me throw this chart up here, and you can just kind of see this. Um, what, What I think happens sometimes with us as individuals is rather than directing and turning these things to God, we turn these things away from God and we use them selfishly. And the two ways we do that is through indulging these areas of ourselves or denying or numbing these areas of ourselves. And I've given you some examples, but I want you to just keep in mind the bigger picture here is I can't be growing in my heart if I'm not getting my mind online. And, and, and we, we play to our strengths here, right? Like some of us are heart people, we're feelers, we're emotionally connected, and yet we're just like, oh, I hate study. Those people are so boring and they're so dead and they're so cold and logical and rational. And some of us are like, life of the mind, like we're tricking out on you know reading and we're all about study and reflection and we go to monasteries and we we do all this stuff and we're like, those feelers, man, like, you you can't trust your feelings. Like, and we kind of demonize the heart people. Uh, None of us really know what to do with soul. Like, all of us lack soulfulness for the most part. Uh, And then our variness. like, who knows? Like, our possessions, our our bodies, like, all these things. The point is, you need to pay attention and ask yourself, where might I be indulging or turning this thing away from God and using it in self-interested ways? So, for instance, with your heart, You can take feelings, which are good. You are created as an emotional being. Jesus was the most emotionally integrated, healthy human being that ever lived. He could be sad, and he could be angry. He could be sorrowful. He could be lonely. Jesus knew how to express full range of his emotions. But if you are ruled by your emotions, some of you know what I'm talking about. It's just like the hurricane is blowing, right? And you are just in the chaos of like, today I feel like this, but then I feel like this, and then it's like this, and I don't know. And you, you feel that melancholy, that despair, that emotional chaos. Others of you are on the other side. Most men are on the other side. A lot of Christians are on the other side. We are so out of touch with our emotions. We wouldn't know an emotion if it hit us in the face, right? Like I remember a couple years ago having this conversation with my wife who's a feeler, and she's so great with her heart, and she's just looking at me going like, I'm missing something here. I'm missing, like, if, if you're a person that thinks, I don't need emotions, ask the people around you how they feel about you being emotionally repressed. I bet, like, your roommates don't like it. I bet your wife doesn't like it. I bet your husband doesn't like it. Your kids certainly don't like it, right? Like, um, but, but I was so out of touch, and it, literally, I had to get a feelings chart out of a book and study and learn what is lonely. Like, my, my dad's here. I grew up in a family. We didn't talk a lot about emotions. We didn't talk a lot about our hearts occasionally, but we just, that wasn't really our sweet spot. And so I had to, like, look it up and okay, I'm feeling lonely, and this is what this means. And I had to learn, like, how to talk to my wife about sadness and how to talk to my wife about emotion. And now I'm, like, you know, 10%. My tank's a little bit higher. But I see how dysfunctional my spirituality was if it wasn't engaging my heart wasn't engaging the heart of my wife wasn't engaging the heart of my kids wasn't engaging my coworkers, even in the church so looking at this and going hey where am i diminished where am i exaggerated where am i low where am i being ruled by these things where are they not being turned and directed towards god and seeing them all as an interconnected whole you cannot have maturity in your spirituality and in your relationship with god unless all of these things are being synced together and harmonized Second um, application for us is not just whole person, but whole church. Whole church. We need each other. We need each other. These are the things that um, can split churches. These are the things that can divide communities. Um, When we don't learn to welcome and honor and learn from each other, like the way that you grow in heart is get around some heart people, right? Right? Start talking about your emotions with people who know and traffic in emotions. The way we grow in the life of the mind, we struggle there to be disciplined with our thoughts and to be anchored in truth, is to get some truth tellers. Now, I know as soon as you get around a truth teller, a feeler's going to be like, ah, walls going up, you're going to be like, that person scares me, they, I, I don't like them, you know. But the reality is we all need each other. Romans chapter 12, right, Paul says we're a body, we're a body. And if you look at the gifts, you could actually break them out into heart, mind soul and strength right that's one way you could look at this filter of gifts we need all the gifts we need the truth tellers but the truth tellers need the feelers we all need soul we need our variness to be transformed and conformed right like we need to receive from one another and not demonize the gifts that others bring and understand that in order to grow up into the maturity that God has for us we need everybody operating and using their gifts together So that we might learn like right like we need people that are excited like some people we're a mind heavy church to some degree at soma and people who are heart people will walk into our worship services and they will be like man it is dead in here nobody's clapping nobody's yelling nobody's singing nobody's really like laying it out there nobody's dancing right like this is a very tame midwestern kind of church right like you know like many of us grew up in mainline churches where that was the imprint on us, but the reality is we need heart, right, in our relationship with God. We need heart. We need the fullness of what it means to really love God from our heart, from our soul, with energy and enthusiasm and vitality, but we don't just want to be bleeding hearts. We also want to think, right? We want to think truth. We want to study and reflect and read and make sure that as we're feeling that it's, it's being, it's being kind of guarded by the truth in terms of who God is and what he's about in the world. So all of this to say, we need to be integrated in our spirituality, and that God invites us to experience that. Now, how do we actually do that in our life together? What does that look like to orient a life that's directed towards God so that we do actually love him with our heart, mind, soul, and strength? What does it look like to organize and be intentional about crafting a way of life and a way of being in the world? that gets us to doing that more regularly, more consistently by the grace of God. Again, the grace of God is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. We don't drift into this kind of way of life. It takes practice. So next week, you have to come back. Next week, we're going to talk about how that actually looks, uh, what that actually looks like and how we do that in the ordinary kind of mundaneness of our life together as God's people. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion and uh, send you guys out. Father, we thank you that you have created us as whole people, heart, mind, soul, strength, body, thoughts, feelings, desires, imagination, memories, choices. God, you have made us whole people, and you have called us to love you from all of those areas of our being. God, not to deny those realities, not to indulge those realities in a way that would turn us away from you, but to offer them up to you to offer our deepest desires and affections to you so that you might satisfy them. Think of Psalm 42 as a deer pants for water, so we are supposed to pant for and long for you. And so, God, we offer up our imperfect desires and ask you to satisfy us now as we come to communion with your body broken for us and your blood shed for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.